0: Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. On today's episode, you'll hear my guest, Mary Drummond, who's the chief marketing officer at Worthix and the dynamic host of the Riveting Voices of Customer Experience podcast, talk about how to really hear your customers and fix their pain points. We talk about surveys, but is that the best method? Is there such a thing as survey fatigue? Also, when you have customer feedback, are you doing something to address what customers told you? In other words, are you closing the loop? She discusses the best ways to accomplish all of this and much more so that you're doing CX right to achieve growth and higher customer satisfaction rates. Please, if you like the show, I ask that you share it with others. Subscribe to Doing CX Right on your favorite podcast channel. It means a lot. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Mary Drummond,
1: welcome to the Doing CX Right show. Hey Stacey, it's so good to be here. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you today. It's it's been a while, so it's gonna be great to catch up. Absolutely. In in real time, not no rehearsals here. This is
0: the real deal, <laughs> which is the way we operate anyway.
1: Yeah.
0: So let's start off with who are you? What do you do? Tell my audience.
1: I'm the chief marketing officer at a SaaS company called Worthix that uses artificial intelligence to kind of revolutionize the way that customers dialogue with companies. But uh, that's my day job. Um, my, uh, my little side gig is that I also host a podcast called Voices of CX Podcast. And we were one of the really early customer experience podcasts that hit the market. So... We managed to get a, a huge uh, listener base and it's been really amazing. We're on season eight, coming on to season nine, we're hitting our 100th episode. So it's it's been a really amazing ride and I'm so excited for you getting started with your podcast. And I can't wait to hear your 100th episode whenever it comes out. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that. And thank you also, because
0: you had me on your show a, a while ago. And it definitely you and and I can count on in one hand of people that really inspired me to, to do this. And one of the things I do want to highlight, because this is not the the topic of the show today, but I do want to speak from my heart, which is here we are, both in the CX space, we both have, you know, our day job and we both have our night passions. (laughs) And I love that we all help each other. You're on my show. I'm on your show. And we need the rest of the world actually doing this beyond just a podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things that I talk about all the time, which is how compassionate and sharing and caring this industry is. It's really, for me, one of the things that makes me so passionate about what I do, which is I know that this passion is shared with this amazing group of individuals who are constantly uplifting and empowering each other uh, as a community. And it just makes it really, it, it makes it more pleasure than work, truly, to be a part of this this industry.
0: Yes. And and I think we have an opportunity to model for finance, for other, you know, legal, for call centers, for, you know, every department in a company, like exactly what we're doing is scr- scratching each other's back, lifting each other yeah. up. <laughs> it's such a movement. But anyway, I'll get back on task here. What's one fact that people might not know about you?
1: Well, it depends if they listen to my podcast a lot or not. So for the people who uh, who have listened, they probably know this. But for others, I don't know. I'm actually an expat kid. I was born and raised in South America in Brazil. So that's something that most people don't know. Look at your face of shock. <laughs> I did not yeah. know that. No, that's a great yeah. fun fact for sure. Yeah. It kind of catches people off guard, and and uh, I love it. for for those of us who were born abroad and had parents who were constantly travel traveling and transferred all over the globe, it's it's really normal and it's kind of our reality. But for other people that don't know that this world exists, they're like, "You were born abroad? You don't have an <laughs> accent? Who are you? What are you?" So <laughs> it's funny.
0: Yes, yes. So going back to that, why? Why are you so passionate around the work that
1: you do? What's the why behind it? I'm passionate about everything I do. I'm I'm a person of very intense emotions, which makes uh, it very interesting for my family because they have to deal with all my highs and lows. And you know, I'm I, I cry a lot. I have really big feelings. I'm extremely empathetic. I'm very compassionate. So I think that, that, that pouring my heart and soul into everything that I do is is really a part of my personality. You know, if, if I, I remember at one point I started when my daughter was born and I took some time off of work, I started doing a baby blog for baby food and trying to teach other mothers how to, you know, do kind of like introducing foods and stuff like that. And it got really, really big. And everybody mentioned the same thing. Oh, you're so passionate about this. It's so amazing to really feel your heart and soul. And then after that, I decided to do like succulent arrangements and I put all of my heart and soul into that. And for 11 years before getting into marketing, I was actually a teacher and I taught uh, English as a second language for a really long time. And, and I was also really passionate about that. So I think that that's just something that I do. I could never work with something that I don't feel passionate about. Therefore, every time I'm doing something, I'm giving it my all. Agree, I relate to that
0: very much, Mm -hmm. absolutely. (laughs) So let's get into some topics here for the audience. And I'm really about doing, not just talking about customer Mm -hmm. experience and doing it right. So first of all, the phrase Customer experience has a lot of meaning to people in different ways. Let's start there. What does that mean to you, in in where
1: you work? I think that it, it's interesting because sometimes I, I hear a lot of people talking about how there are so many different definitions for customer experience, but I don't think that that's the point. I just think it's very broad. And the fact that it's very broad and it encompasses so much of the, the, the work that companies do with customers that it's hard to put it into a neat little nutshell. There are so many moving parts. But customer experience truly is about the perceptions that customers have with your brand from way before they start interacting with you until way after. And like I said, since it's perceptions and perceptions aren't very tangible, it's, it's really hard to kind of hit it hard on the head, you know, because there are so many different aspects to what creates this perception in customers and how their experiences are shaped. But that's the part that I try to consider the sum of the perceptions that customers have when doing business with a brand. Great answer. I love that. Let's talk
0: about, <laughs> you've written an article that's a very catchy title, by the way, Your Customers Think You're Deaf. Now, before we go into it, what drove you to write about this? What was that that pull and the need that you see?
1: Well, here's the thing, Stacey, even though we all work with customer experience and we're on the other side of the table most of the time, we are also all customers. So I think that that's one of the reasons why it's easier to be empathetic in customer experience, at least for people like you and me. But it's not about putting ourselves in the customer's shoes because we are in the customer's shoes in so many different moments of our day. And we have so many frustrating experiences. We have so many positive experiences. We have so many just easygoing, natural experiences. And for me, as a customer, I started noticing that there were things that happened in my relationships with companies, especially the way... That companies solicited feedback, that it didn't really feel like these, these, these individuals and organizations were being empathetic to customers when coming up with these strategies for collecting voice of customer feedback. So that was a big part of my frustration. It's it's frustrating for me to be in customer experience and have such poor experiences. And those poor experiences being common practice and best practice of the market. And hearing the market not only encouraging the continuation of these feedback collection processes, but, but continuing to do so even after time and time again, customers have said, Please stop doing this, this is absolutely terrible. And you know why aren't we listening? Why aren't we coming up with better ways? Why aren't we trying to innovate? We do that in so many other areas. How come in the exact moment where we need to open up and have a conversation with customers, why are we so stuck on doing this in a way that customers absolutely hate? We hate answering surveys when we get them. Why on earth would we imagine that customers would ha- other customers would have a good time? You know, so I think that that truly was a frustration and it's kind of like a little mini rant, that article, but it it really was just like almost a wake-up call of, hey, I hate this, you hate this, everybody else hates this, let's stop doing it.
0: Mm -hmm. So survey fatigue is what you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Now, what are, someone listening might be, well, that, I don't know how else to get feedback. What do you say? Are you suggesting no more surveys or are you suggesting to do it differently?
1: Oh, I'm I'm absolutely not suggesting no more surveys. And I'm 100% suggesting let's do it differently. Here's the thing. I remember a couple of years ago, I had a guy called Max Israel on the, on the podcast. And Max had started a company called CustomerVille. And CustomerVille had a project called 40 billion reasons why. And 40 billion was, according to Max, the number of surveys that Americans received per year. (laughs) Now, here's the thing there's nothing inherently wrong with sending out surveys. They are, in fact, excellent ways to get your customer to talk to you when they really need to. So, you know, the whole no news is good news thing, right? But when there is bad news, people need a channel that they can go to. And people feel like perhaps a survey is a good channel to to vent their complaints and get some results. But in fact, they are not, not the way they are built nowadays. The common survey, either customer satisfaction, net promoter score, any of that stuff, it doesn't allow customers at any point to speak in their raw open voice in a way that can be truly extracted and put into action on behalf of the company. So even when companies provide customers with an an open-ended question that they can feel free to answer at will, the information that they put in there, customers think that people are going to read that. But in fact, when you're dealing with really large organizations, up until this point, there hasn't been a sustainable way to truly extract impact from customer feedback so that companies know where they need to invest their resources in first, which situations are critical and causing customer churn, and which ones are complaints, but may not necessarily be the most important thing that's driving the customer to buy from a company or not. So what happens is that when customers turn to surveys as a way to dialogue with companies, they cannot they're forced to answer a set of questions that have been previously designed by the organization with an agenda in mind, a set of questions that have maybe nothing to do with the customer's actual grievance. Now, the last time that you answered a survey, I'm going to imagine that it was either ridiculously long and not the questions that you were interested in answering or really really short and also not giving you the possibility to talk about what was important to you. That's kind of it. So when we as customers receive a one or two question survey, we're relieved. Oof, okay, well, that was short. But in truth, we weren't able to talk about anything. We weren't able to give our opinion. And we weren't able to say, hey, this thing that you guys are doing is wrong. That thing is right. If you continue to do this one thing here, I'm going to leave. We, we don't get that opportunity as customers. And but it's, it's, literally the most crucial thing to any customer-centric organization to empower the customer to have their voice heard by the company. So why is it that we think it's okay to constantly haggle and harass our customers 40 billion times a year for feedback and then have no way of actually listening to what's important to them?
0: Hmm. Do you have a different perspective of electronic survey versus phone survey?
1: I haven't intentionally picked up my phone in like four years. (laughs) So so I, I think that phone surveys are something that work for a very specific demographic. But for the market as a whole, I don't know how sustainable that is. Firstly, because we're so spammed by robocalls on a daily basis that we have literally been trained to not answer our phones. And, uh, you know, I, I try to answer phones that only come from my local area code. And still, I'm still harassed by telemarketers. And and um, we wanted to, you know, talk to you about your car's extended warranty. And the IRS is knocking on your door. And there's, there's so much noise that gets in the way of an actual conversation that can be had from a company and its customers. So, you know, perhaps for a, an older demographic that uses landlines in their home, perhaps in a, a B2B situation, uh, manufacturing where people tend to sit at their desks and are able to answer the phone. Another situation that that I've heard of that's common for phone surveys is for instance my company Worthix we work with Volvo trucks and part of the the dialogue that we had to have with with customers was with truck drivers and truck drivers can't answer emails truck drivers can't answer electronic surveys so it had to be done by phone so in that case it's absolutely wonderful but in most uh, direct to consumer sales i think that it's not really practical to conduct Phone interviews in Mm -hmm. general. I
0: actually, going back to feedback, um, I I wrote an article about being in the airport. It's been a while, but I remember (laughs) being in the airport and in the restroom are the three buttons, a smile, a frown.
1: Who wants to touch that? (laughs) Who
0: wants to touch that? Let's start there. But then once you get over who will touching it, the thing that baffled me i was like staring at it remem- remembering like intrigued because so what i give you i press the frown now what mm-hmm. what's the company receiving my button press which i'm sure there's a lot of false presses anyway but let's mm-hmm. say some real ones what's that going to tell you why i put the red
1: button uh, why are why ask yeah i mean i i i share this frustration, I've got the sunlight shining in on my face here. It's a really bright afternoon in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that so many companies believe that that is enough, that giving the opportunity for customers to say happy and sad is a good way of listening. When in fact, studies have proven that happy and sad are not the main definers of churn and loyalty. Also, like, what's the point in the bathroom? I mean, it would be more practical, I would say, to have a button saying this bathroom needs to be serviced or this bathroom was acceptable or this bathroom was not acceptable. But putting a little smiley chart there for people to press a scale, no, no, that wasn't done properly.
0: No, so, but now we're bringing up a really good point. The whole the whole notion of close the loop. Hmm. What does that mean to you? Because to do a survey or any feedback mechanism is one thing, you get the feedback. But now what? What have you seen that companies can do once you get the feedback in the right way, however that means for B2B or B2C, How do you what do you do with that? How do you make it now actionable and who owns it? What's your views? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I've I've got an interesting perspective. I don't know if you've heard me talking about close the loop before. Because I, I have an interesting perspective on it. I think that when the customer gives feedback, the most important thing in the customers' minds is for the company to fix it. And if you fix it, okay problem solved. But of course it's not that simple. It's not like companies have levers and buttons that they press to fix processes and services and huge entire departments and organizations with hundreds of thousands of employees worldwide. It's it really truly isn't that simple. Sometimes for large enterprises, like if you're a mom and pop shop where it's, you know, two, three people, maybe 10, 15 employees, it becomes a lot easier for you to close the loop and solve a a customer issue. But when you're talking at scale, that becomes a much bigger challenge. and It becomes an, an almost daunting task, right? So in those cases, I truly believe that a chief experience officer and someone that's responsible for orchestrating the different departments inside of an organization to make sure that the issues that are truly causing customers to decide to leave that company are resolved with urgency. And that person, given the authority to make changes and perhaps override the processes and systems that are in place to be able to attend a customer need, that ends up being a really important uh, individual a real important catalyst of change inside the organization. So that would be my go-to kind of in a box answer to who should own that feedback and who should be responsible for implementing it. Now, here's another thing that's really important. A lot of companies have taken up the practice of using either um, call center representatives or other individuals to actually pick up the phone and call the customer and give them some sort of accommodate them or make them feel heard by calling them on the phone and saying, hey, we received your complaint. I'm so sorry for this. We're doing our best, right? And I, I truly don't know if across the board, this is a sustainable practice that truly has a strong effect on customers. Because if you, if you do this, but you don't fix whichever problem is wrong it's all for naught it's better for you not to call in the first place because when you're calling you're reaffirming the expectation that is then just going to get frustrated if you don't follow through with your company promise right so you know i've i've had a couple um really intelligent people that are constantly bringing this up you know All customers want when they start doing business with you as a brand is for you to follow through with your brand promise, whatever it is that made the customer buy from you to begin with. And if you're failing at that, and if you can't deliver what you promised, then you shouldn't even exist as an organization. Now, trying to close the loop when you have no way of actually helping the customer with that issue may just be a further shot in In the foot, perhaps maybe you're shooting the other foot because you're increasing expectations about something that's not going to change. So I would I would say that lots of times close the loop has become kind of a band-aid when in fact what the customer probably needs is some antibiotics or some ointment. So healing the problem as opposed to just slapping a band-aid on it and going on your merry way.
0: I also take the approach. I go around every department and I say, You have a CX job, whether you realize it or not. And they'll be like, No, 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 I don't. I don't touch the customer. I said, Well, let me, let, let's sit down. Let me explain this to you. <laughs> let me explain to you how you impact a customer journey. And, and then they say, Oh, okay. And then they start to get, feel empowered. And want the feedback so then they can actually make the billing systems easier, make the all the different aspects of of the journey and how they affect it a lower level of effort. So I think it's really interesting how people don't fully understand it, and then we get to be the glue to help connect all the dots, break silos, and then, Close the loop with those stakeholders because they wouldn't have had the feedback without, you know, with, without uh, some CX team doing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, and I agree with you. If you're not going to do something with it and get it to the right people to fix whatever that is or keep doing what's working, then don't ask.
1: Yeah. I think that you know, you are the person in your job. You are the person, you are that agent of change and the one who who speaks to each individual owner, task owner, let's say, and tries to somehow convince them of the importance of taking this feedback into consideration, right? So you are, your job is to be this maestro and I think that it's it's such a beautiful job really. I'm not I'm not going to say that it's without pains and frustrations because I'm sure there are a lot of them. But I imagine that when you see all of the pieces come together to truly improve the experience of your customers, this is a beautiful thing.
0: Absolutely. And then it goes to all of the CX leaders, managers, advocates, influencers, right? All the people we all see on LinkedIn a lot. It really shows the power of of a movement because Mm -hmm. every single one of us and everybody's, you know, recognized in different publications and in different ways, small and big, but it really is the collection of what you're doing, what I'm doing, what the Shep Hyken's doing, what the... It's all of us. We would never be able to be change agents without this invisible thread of what we're all doing.
1: Yeah.
0: And I I think that what's magical is that we all know that we're creating a movement and we're getting more people on the ship one by one by one by one. But we also have to be very careful. Because a lot of people are just putting out the shingle, (laughs) the claiming that they're in a CX job and they don't understand what the heck is customer experience versus customer success versus customer service, right? They're different. So we got to be careful. Not everybody is just claiming this and not really doing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I actually like one of the things that I like doing, I enjoy doing and I've done this since I started this work is is to speak to all industries because I believe that they all in some way overlap with customer experience. So even in the in the opener of the podcast, it's I you know, I speak to to industry experts about how their job overlaps with customer experience. And that's something that's really crucial. And it goes to what you just said. Every single department is somehow responsible for a portion of the customer's journey. And getting them to understand why they play such an important role and how they can contribute to that overall positive experience is really, really important. You know, So you don't have to necessarily be in CX in order to be the change and be the driver of positive experiences. All you have to do is truly understand the concept of customer centricity and how that relates to your industry, to your job, to what it is that you're doing every single day.
0: Yes. And get the basics right. (laughs) Just get the basics. So we have uh, just some minutes left. This went way too fast. So let me get (laughs) to my final two. That is, if I had a ton of CEOs, leaders, entrepreneurs in my room right now, what is the key takeaway? What's the most important thing you want them to know?
1: I, I would like these individuals to start paying more attention to the customer decision because the customer decision is truly the moment in the journey where money is exchanged, where money changes hands, where money is exchanged for value of some sort. And everybody keeps talking about the ROI of CX, uh, and you know where's the profit? You know what does this mean for the bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the moment that the the numbers actually change is at the decision. It's when the customer decides to do business with you, when they decide to rebuy or subscribe, or when they decide to leave you for your competition because you're not good enough. So putting the decision under the microscope and understanding which parts of your experience are making or breaking the customer's decision is truly for me, step one, once you understand what motivates the decision, then you can start tinkering with the rest for it to work. But if you don't understand what's going on right now, currently with your customer, how are you supposed to know what to improve? You know, I, I've heard countless stories of organizations that have spent massive sums of money investing in campaigns and projects and products and services that were absolutely irrelevant to the customer and had zero contribution to the quality of their experience. And I ask myself, did no one ask the customer how much this product or service or whatever would influence or impact their decision? What a waste of money, what a waste of time, what a waste of effort. When in fact, the true things that are driving loyalty, churn, repurchase, all of these amazing metrics, is something that the company doesn't even know and understand because they never took the moment to analyze what perceptions, what drivers, what sentiments are composing the customer's decision. Yeah. And
0: then my final question, if you could go back in time to your younger self, your 20-year-old self, what would you tell your younger self, Mary, at that age that you didn't know then that you know now?
1: So much, Stacy. The first one would be that haircut truly sucks. <laughs> get a different one. Uh. <laughs> That's great.
0: Yes, my old hairdos are quite
1: funny. Yes, big big
0: hair I had.
1: <laughs> but I think that the that, that the most important one that that time has taught me is is to not be afraid of making mistakes. And you're the mistakes are inevitable and and the only thing that you can control truly is how you react when things go wrong, and what you choose to do after. So if you choose to stand back up, if you choose to go back at it, if you choose to try to make the same mistakes over and over again and expect a different outcome, all of these things have a really big influence in our lives. And and getting back up and working on improving and looking at different forms to do better and get it right over and over again, if necessary, and having the tolerance and understanding with myself about my own learning process and growth process. I think that that's what I would tell my 20-year-old self. And, and I think that that's, it's advice that I would give my children because I don't ever want my children to grow up afraid of making mistakes and so terrified of failure that they fail to try and they fail to do new things and they fail to experiment and they fail to live because that paralyzing fear of failure is holding them back. So yeah, that's that's what it would
0: be. I love it, and I relate to that. I mean, my twenty-year-old self would never be doing a podcast. <laughs> I <It> would, n- <laughs> I would never subject myself to articles like I'd be too worried who's going to listen or read. And now, it's okay. I love doing it, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: And- yeah, that's a, that's another really important thing, you know. Like, even, even I'm I'm thirty-seven nowadays, and you don't get to have 100% of people liking you all the time or applauding you or or pushing you forward. That's that's not what reality is like. So if you expect to be accepted and received by everybody and be applauded for all of your efforts all the time, then you're going to have a really, really frustrating life. You know, so I, I, I like say like, what's the ultimate result? Is, is the ultimate result positive? You know, you're going to have very strange characters um, sliding into your LinkedIn DMs and criticizing your work and asking you why you're doing things and questioning your integrity, questioning the quality of your work. Um, there, And there are going to be hordes of people that encourage you and help and and lift you up. So ultimately, are you doing more good than bad? Are you getting more right than wrong? Is your learning curve going up instead of down? And, and that's how you kind of just uh, focus on the end result is what I'm trying to say, and not on the little hiccups and obstacles along the way. Yeah, agree. Well,
0: I am so grateful I'm sad the time is over but grateful that we had this quality moments together and sharing such wonderful wisdom with with doing CX right listeners and I know they're going to want to get in touch with you. I'll put all the links in the show notes but
1: share what what is the best way to find you? I'm mostly active on two channels, LinkedIn and Instagram. If you choose to follow me on Instagram, you're going to see some work content, but not a lot. So proceed with caution. But on LinkedIn, I'm fairly active. I I constantly share articles, webinars, resources that I put together. So that's probably the best place. Awesome. You're awesome. And thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity, Stacey. It
0: was really great.